So Deuteronomy chapter 26, verses 1 through 12. And it shall be, when you come into the land which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance, and you possess it and dwell in it, that you shall take some of the... some of the first of all the produce of the ground, which you shall bring from your land that the Lord your God is giving you, and put it in a basket and go to the place where the Lord your God chooses to make his name abide. And you shall go to the one who is priest in those days and say to him, I declare today to the Lord your God that I have come to the country which the Lord swore to our fathers to give us. Then the priest priest shall take the basket out of your hand And set it down before the altar of the Lord your God. And you shall answer and say before the Lord your God, My father was an Armean, about to perish, and he went down to Egypt and dwelt there. Few in number, and there he became a nation, great, mighty, and populous. But the Egyptians mistreated us, afflicted us, and laid hard bondage on us. Then we cried out to the Lord, to the Lord God of our fathers, And the Lord heard our voice and looked on our affliction and our labor and our oppression. So the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm, with great terror and with signs and wonders. He has brought us to this place and has given us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And now behold, I have brought the first fruits of the land which you, O Lord, have given me. Then you shall set it before the Lord your God and worship before the Lord your God. So you shall rejoice in every good thing which the Lord your God has given to you and your house, and you and the Levite and the stranger who is among you. When you have finished laying aside all the tithe of your increase in the third year, the year of tithing, and have given it to the Levite, the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow, so that they may eat within your gates and be filled. Thank you, Tracy. By the way, um, just want to wish a Chag Sameach. Can you say Chag Sameach? Tomorrow is Mother's Day. Not Thursday, Mother's Day. Yes. And in a couple of weeks, we will be celebrating Shavuot, the Feast of Weeks. And um, felt led. This year to begin a um, three messages on Shavuot, the Feast of Weeks, um, because in a sense this is a multi-layered festival. It began as a harvest festival, and I'll talk about that quite a bit today, mostly today. And then um, the rabbis at some point calculated the timing of this festival and the connection with the giving of the Torah, they came away with the conclusion that the Torah was given in Mount Sinai on that same day. And if you're familiar with the book of Acts, chapter 2, how that on that particular day, which was called in Greek Pentecost, 50th day, the Spirit of God was poured out dramatically and decisively on a group of Jews. Um, That was the beginning of the body of Messiah. And then sometime later, the Spirit of God began to come on Gentiles. Uh, We see that in Acts 11. So this is kind of an overview. Um, 
And Shavuot was given a number of different names. Um, first of all, Shavuot stands for seven weeks, which the people of Israel were to count from the second day of Passover, which, it, which is where we have the first feast of first fruits. It's kind of confusing, but we have two feasts of first fruits. We have the first first fruits, and then we have the second first fruit. The first first fruits was a time when the people of Israel brought the barley, because barley was the first crop in the land of Israel to begin. And in the book of Leviticus, uh, which James referred to earlier, we see that the people of Israel were to take and, and bring the choicest of their, their crop, the barley, and then count 49 days and then on the 50th day have the second first fruits in which the rest of the first fruits were to be brought. And by the way, Israel at that time had seven main crops and so um, you had wheat and, and oil and olives and uh, grapes and so on and so forth. Uh, and so those were to be brought to the temple and the people were to celebrate it. Um, so it was, this day was called uh, Shavuot. It was also called Chag HaKatsir. I won't ask you to pronounce that. Katsir just simply means harvest. And the third main name is called Yom HaBikurim, the day of first fruits. And in case you wonder why there's so much emphasis on these um, feasts that have to do with first fruits, you have to realize that Israel was an agricultural society and life revolved for the Israelites revolved around agriculture. So we have, for instance, the, uh, the first fruits m mentioned in the spring <clears throat> and, then, and then we have the conclusion of the agriculture year, year um, during the festival of Sukkot or tabernacles or booths. So everything revolved around that. And um, the people of Israel were expected to stop what they were doing and come to the temple and bring these offerings to God. Now, just in case you wonder, um, offerings were not very convenient. It, it's not as if the people of Israel could sit at their computer and um, do some kind of PayPal system and send an offering to God in the, in the uh, temple in Jerusalem, they would typically have to get out, stop their agriculture, um, and have to hike a couple of days, particularly if they were in the northern part of Israel, uh, which is near the Lebanese border, and come all the way down to Jerusalem and along with their offerings. And so this was highly inconvenient and, you know, since God is God, he has the, the right to require that people do what is inconvenient and to honor him. And part of what they did was they would take, uh, on Shavuot, on this festival, they would take two loaves. We only have one challah. We only have two loaves um, 
on the 26th, and they would take it and bring it as a wave offering. Uh, the waving basically was front to back, side to side, and up and down. And you wonder why they did that. Well, think about it. When you wave it that way, you cover all bases. You're indicating that God is above and below, that God is side to side, that God is in front and in back. And because of that, he is worthy of, of our honor. That is, by the way, the typical um, act when you see anything in Scripture referring to a wave offering. It's not the kind of wave you see in stadiums where everybody gets up and do the funny business and, and uh, wave and then sit down. Um, so there was a lot of coverage, a lot of airtime given to these festivals. And you have that all the way from the beginning in the book of Exodus and then Leviticus and Numbers and even in Deuteronomy there are a couple of places. Now, just to give you a little clue where we find ourselves in the book of Deuteronomy here, in the very beginning Israel received instructions from God in a desert in front of Mount Sinai. And they had absolutely no indication, visibly, as far as facts on the ground, that they will ever be in a place where they will be farmers and they will gather crops. It was something that was clearly beyond them, with the exception of those that remembered their time in Egypt. But in the desert, you really don't have any expectation of that happening as far as your natural mind, your natural thinking. Deuteronomy, the picture is different. Here you are, if you fast forward, you come to a time 40 years later, the people of Israel are not in the desert, they are on the plains of Moab, high plains of Moab, looking down and, and seeing the land of Canaan. Now, they, they weren't able to see uh, the, the land in sharp, clear detail. The only one who was able to do that was Moses when God brought him up to Mount Nebo, which is the highest pointed at that place. And Moses was able to actually look down and see the land. But the people had a clearer picture of what is going on. And here in Deuteronomy, by the way, the entire book of Deuteronomy is given to the people of Israel at that particular spot. And Moses, what he does is he goes back, he reviews the tapes that they had received on Mount Sinai, and, and we're told in the beginning of Deuteronomy that he undertook to take and clarify and go over and amplify so that the people would understand God's instruction, God's Torah. Why? Because now they're at a point where they are preparing to cross over into the land of Canaan. They have to understand what God wants from them. And they have to have it appear in their minds and also here in their, in their hearts. They have to be engaged on all levels to be prepared to come into the land. So at this point, it's no longer just the gleam in the Papa's eye as it was way back 
in Exodus when they were in the desert. Here, there's actually more reality to it. And when you stop and think about it, the way these kinds of situations apply to us, God typically gives us a vision. And by the way, let me just put in a commercial. If you have not received a vision from God for your life, for your destiny, He wants to give you one. You know, I often stand and talk about it, and sometimes I get the impression that people think I'm speaking Chinese or in Klingonese. Um, The notion that God would speak to an average ordinary human being who is not Moses and uh, or who is not Abraham just seems to fly over at Mark 15. The truth is, folks, every one of us who has a relationship with God has been called to serve Him. Amen. And God is more invested in you and I knowing what He wants us to do than we are. Think about it, folks. For example, if you, are, if you are a parent or a teacher or in some kind of position of authority, particularly as a parent, are you going to look at your child and begin some sort of an ex- existential uh, discussion about the meaning of life and your own personal struggle and then say, uh, would you please do such and such? Or would you say, go do it so that you're your child knows exactly what you want, what you are expected, what is expected of, of him or her, and that's so that they can go do it. Same thing with us, folks. Our Heavenly Father wants us to get it, to have a vision, to have a, and a vision basically means a, a basic understanding of what God wants us to do. And sometimes... The vision that we have seems like far away as if it has no reality, not much reality. And at some point, God takes us from the desert, like he did with the people of Israel, and brings us along into a place, into a season or a place that's farther, that's closer to what he has in mind. And we wake up and say, oh, okay, I get it. I'm beginning to see what God has been doing all along and what he's preparing for me to do, and yes, I'm engaged and willing to do that. But the people of Israel are in transition time, and God has to give them direction for the future, for a time when they will actually be farmers. Again, at this point, they're not farmers. They had never been farmers, And so part of the picture is a basic attitude of trust in God to where they say, okay, Lord, I don't know what this farming business is all about, but you tell me that when you bring me into the land, I will become a farmer, whatever that looks like, and that you will expect me to to take what I harvest and bring it to you as an expression of gratitude but again there are times when God speaks to us and we really don't have a clear grasp of what things look like 
in his reality, in his realm, everything is all already laid out. He's been working behind the scenes, and at his appointed time, he will pull back the curtain and say, okay, this is the time. Do you see it? Do you get it? One of my favorite words in scripture that James referred to earlier, moed, doesn't just mean festivals as in P Passover and, and Shavuot, but moed means God's appointed time. In other words, God has a calendar, and at his timing in the calendar, he rolls up the sleeves and get to work. Again, coming back to my favorite example, Abraham, there are a couple of places where the Lord says, but my covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah will bear to you by this time next year. Lamoed. This is uh, chapter 17 of Genesis, and then chapter 18. Is anything too hard for the Lord? I will return to you at the appointed time next year, Moed, appointed time Moed, and Sarah will have a son. By the way, just to remind you, when Abraham, the great father of faith, hears it, he busts a gut and falls on the floor laughing. And then sometime later when the message is repeated, Sarah busts a gut and also laughs, which we all do. Because we all have the attitude that says, God, you got to be kidding. Me? No, I can see him or her doing that, but me? And what blesses my heart, folks, after all the years in ministry, and you know, part of reality is that you go back and forth, you, you say, Lord, why did you pick me? I can give you a list of 10 or 15 people who are better equipped you know, and the Lord is kind of narrow-minded about that. He doesn't see fit to give us an answer. He just engages with us, and He tells us to engage with Him. Beginning this chapter 26 here in Deuteronomy, notice the language when it says, When you have entered the land, the Lord is giving you as an inheritance, and you have taken possession and settled in it, you are to do such and such. Now think about the way this is phrased. God is giving this land to you. In other words, He is in process. He is engaged. He is active. He is working. But you're still on the other side of the border, on the high plains of Moab, and you do not have the land at this point, but God is in process of giving it to you. Think about what that means. What it simply suggests is that God is active invisibly in ways we cannot see. And as far as He's concerned, it's a done deal. And in His time, it will become reality as far as the facts on the ground. We see the same thing in Joshua. Joshua chapter 1. Moses, my servant, is dead. Now then, you and all these people get ready to cross the Jordan River into the land I'm about to give them. Same kind of language. I'm in process to the Israelites. I will give you every place where you have set your foot, as I promised Moses. 
I'm reading from the NIV. And by the way, in Hebrew, what it says literally, every place that you step upon, I have already given it to you. God has already been engaged. God has already been active. And because he is active, you and I can engage and be active and do our part. Very sobering, isn't it? It's a mystery how that God has to do his part, but we also have to do our part. You know, and you kind of go back and forth from the two extremes of, well, if he is God, if he is who he says he is, then he can snap his fingers, speak a word, and everything would be done. The answer is yes. On the other hand, Jewish answer, on the other hand, he sees fit to require that as he's engaged, that you and I are engaged. And by the way, the, the other side of this is that unless God is engaged in our life, in our situation, you and I can huff and puff and accomplish absolutely zip. Perhaps you haven't come to terms with that reality, folks. I have. I have banged my head against the wall enough times to know that either God is engaged and he is working or else everything I do is not going to amount a whole lot. Both and, both and, God is active, he has been active, and then you and I are commanded to engage as well. Another couple of words here in Deuteronomy 26. The Lord is giving, Deuteronomy 26 verse 1, the, the, the Lord has given, is giving you as an inheritance and you have taken possession of it. Two completely different words, completely different meanings. Inheritance is something that is given. And you and I receive it passively. It's given to us and all we do is we say, thank you, I'll take it. David says, the boundary lines have fallen for me in, in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. In other words, God gives and we receive and say thank you. The other word is when you have taken possession, a completely different sense. <clears throat> the word in Hebrew there, yarashta, yarash, means a bunch of things, including to take possession, to dispossess, <clears throat> to inherit, to disinherit, and to occupy. Unfortunately, the word occupy has taken on a somewhat strange meaning this day and age because of Occupy Wall Street, Occupy Denver, there's Occupy Everything. Um, I was listening to the news <clears throat> and hearing that, I believe it was in CU in Boulder, uh, not terribly surprising, that, um, that the students decided to do an Occupy a graduation event protesting the expense of the tuition. Well, you understand their complaint. Um, I'm not convinced that occupying anything under those circumstances really accomplishes anything. The, the idea here of this word yarash means 
that you come and you take possession of, of an area, of a land. It typically means that in order to take possession, you have to kick somebody out. It's not a real uh, PC, not a real user-friendly kind of word. Particularly for us here in the United States where, you know, th there are all kinds of stories about how the land, how our country expanded. A part of reality is that God said to Israel, I'm giving you authority to occupy because the people who have been there have had 400 years of opportunity to repent and they've chosen not to. And my judgment is going to come on them and part of the judgment is that you're going to come in, you're going to be my vessels to take possession of, the, of this. You can understand that taking possession is different than receiving an inheritance because it requires the person to be stout-hearted, to have guts, to have a vision to see what's up ahead and to say, I'm pressing ahead. You know, Yeshua conveys this kind of an attitude in Matthew chapter 11 where he says, from the days of John the Baptist, the immerser, until now the kingdom of heaven has been forcefully advancing and forceful men lay hold of it. You may have a translation that says that the kingdom of heaven suffers violence. And I really don't believe that's what it's saying here. Yes, there's opposition, but citizens of the kingdom of heaven have to be willing to be engaged and to be courageous in taking possession of what God has given us. And it's not either or, it's both and. So the Lord says, when you have come, you're not there yet. When you have come to the land that I've given to you, this is something I've planned out invisibly. I have blueprints for it. And I expect you to come and to engage where I have engaged. Verse 2, take some of the first fruits of the land of all that you produce from the soil and put it in the basket. What did the basket look like? Good question. I'm sure in rabbinic literature you'd find all kinds of descriptions. We don't know. But the point simply is that the farmers in Israel recognized God has been good to us. Yes, we have broken our back in, in, in taking the, uh, the land that was fallow, you know, where, where there are big clods of dirt. I don't know if you like, if we have any gardeners here. I'm a gardener, and part of the picture for me is when I plant something new, I have to get down on my hands and knees and, and, and use it, uh, a shovel, a small shovel, to break up the clods of dirt. Colorado is very clayish. I have to break it up, and that's labor-intensive. You have to get rid of the, the weeds, the vine, the, the bind weeds, you have to get rid of the thorns, you have to get rid of the rocks, and then you sow. 
You do your part. You engage. But unless God engages, your work is going to be worthless. Unless God pours out the rain. And in Israel, by the way, there was... There were, lanes, there were rains in a couple of seasons. There was the early rain in the fall as people were preparing the soil to sow the seed. And then, and then there was also the latter rain in the spring when the seed was already in the ground and it needed to grow and germinate so that it would be ready for harvesting. The Israelites knew that unless God gave them the rain in its proper season and unless God protected them from having locusts to come and and chew everything up all that they did would be worthless and so part of the process for them is to, to pause and say yes I'm busy yes I've got things to do people to see places to go etc etc but God because he's been good to me deserves that I take the time to take the best that I have and give it to him. A couple of Hebrew words there for first fruits. One is reshit, which means the very first thing that comes about. Also the um, the chief, the best. And bikurim means First fruits in, in a sense of that which comes and is special. And what the farmers would do back in the first century is they would take the first fruits, the, the very early and the very best, and they would tie a ribbon around them to mark them so that they would know when it was time to come to Jerusalem. They would know exactly which, which ones were, were the ones they needed to bring. They were to undertake that to honor God as an expression of thanksgiving. So you can say that this was a thank offering. The Lord didn't specify you are to bring this many sheaves of, of wheat and, and 32.5 olives and so on and so forth. They were to bring things as an expression of gratitude as an expression of thanksgiving. And you know, you can look at Israel's history and you can see that where their giving went downhill, there was a very strong connection to their relationship to the Lord and to the, to the temple. You see a lot of that. In fact, in Malachi chapter 1, God is screaming at the people of Israel and says, when you bring blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice crippled or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Try offering them to your governor. Would he be pleased? Would he accept you, says the Lord Almighty? You understand the point. When you go to someone who is very important and you seek their favor, you don't bring them wilted flour. Or you don't bring them a, uh, a piece of steak that looks diseased and has flies all over it. You bring them the best. God requires that we give Him the best. It's hard, isn't it? Because life crowds in and, and we get preoccupied. We get 
either complacent because life is good and life is wonderful, we're taken up with that, or else we're preoccupied because things are difficult. And all we want is for things to get better. And we're not terribly interested in God, we're interested in what God can give us. Especially if we have difficult circumstances. But you know, the the Lord's attitude is that somehow, whether we have an abundance or whether we have limited amount, we still endeavor to honor Him. The Lord says again and again, He makes this statement, No one is to appear before me empty-handed. It's repeated twice in the book of Exodus. If you appear before the Lord empty-handed, what are you saying? You're saying, God, who are you? Who are you? You're not my king. You're not my superior. I come because I feel like coming. Thank you. I don't have to prove anything to you, so I'm not going to bring anything. And yes, folks, there is a lot of hypocrisy and craziness connected with that. You know, and Yeshua talks about that when people were hypocritical and they were trying to prove something to somebody and, and, and show their great generosity. But that's the extreme, the abuse. But God says, I do want you to come and I do want you to make a public statement. That is why each Shabbat, we don't pass the plate. We have a pushka, the box, the offering box in the back. And we encourage you, if you are part of us, and if you are receiving here, to tithe to what God is doing here, to bring 10% of what God is doing. By the way, as we understand tithing, it is not after you have paid all the bills. Tithing is... First fruits, it's the first one. Right off the top, folks. And by the way, you're not giving to us, you're giving to God. We have the pushka back there. We encourage you, if you're part of us, to to come and and give the tithe. If you're visiting and God leads you to to give, by all means, it's certainly not um, under any coercion because all of this has to be an expression of worship to God, folks. It cannot be polluted or defiled by rotten attitudes. Because the person who is coming is giving a public testimony of the goodness of God. Think about it. Think about some of the words we read earlier today. I declare this day that I have entered the land which the Lord swore to our fathers to give us. And I just wanted to do a, a very brief grammatical reading of what this might have looked like. And Michael, would you come? If you can use your sanctified imagination for a moment. I'm an offerer, and here is the, the priest 
And I'm bringing a basket. And I expect that the Israelites would have brought a significantly larger basket. Can't put a whole lot of fruits and vegetables here. By the way, we'll be doing that in two weeks from today. And you shall say, my father was a wandering Aramean and he went down to Egypt and sojourned there. Few in number, but there he became a great, mighty and populous nation. And the Egyptians treated us harshly and afflicted us and imposed hard labor on us. Then we cried to the Lord, the God of our fathers, and he heard our voice and saw our, our affliction and our toil and our oppression. And the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm and with great terror and with signs and wonders. He has brought us into this place and has given us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Now behold, I have brought the first of the produce of the, of the ground which you, not Michael or the priest, which you, O Lord, have given me and you shall set it down before the Lord your God and worship the Lord your God. And by the way, the word for worship there is prostrate yourself on the ground. This is one of the key Hebrew words for worship. Thank you, Michael. One of the key Hebrew words for worship is you bow down in honor, not of the priest, but of God. Now, folks, let's see if we can connect the dots here. First of all, you are expressing a public testimony of goodness to God. And it's trustworthy. Yes, you've been through all kinds of stuff, but somehow God has seen fit to keep you alive, to feed you, to give you all the enchiladas you needed. <laughs> or the bagels, whichever. So it honors the Lord. It's also mutual encouragement to the other worshipers who are there. That they see that God has taken care of you like he's taken care of them. And they all say, yay, God. It's also an encouragement to the priest. Lord knows those priests need that encouragement. Basically a thank offering where you say, God, you've been good to me. You've been good to my people. I give you honor and glory. It's a reminder of the fact that God has not only been good during this time, but he has also been good in times past. And because of that, we can connect the dots from the past to the present and say, God, we're going to trust you for the future. Because of what we've seen here. So we bring the basket gladly. And the other piece of this. Is that we rejoice. We rejoice. And folks, God knows all the things we go through. God knows the upheaval. God knows the 
difficulties, God knows financial stress, God knows physical stress with health issues. God knows all of that. But at some point you have to stop and say, Ebenezer, Evan Haezer, God has seen me thus far and he will bring me along. And I'm being obedient to worship you. By the way, let me just throw this out for you to consider, to put in your pipes as it were. Can you look back over the past year and see growth in how you've been able to worship God? Do you feel like you've learned anything about worshiping God? Or do you feel like that's something that's for the very spiritual or something that God really doesn't care about, etc., etc.? What is worship? Do you want to know what worship is about? You want to grow in it. Was that only something for the children of Israel with all the festivals? Or is that something for us? As James is often like to point out, the festivals are indicated as something that are to be observed in perpetuity. And the New Testament, by the way, if you haven't seen, is full of expressions of worship. By the way, the book of Revelation is not about the end time charts and and prophecies. The book of Revelation is about worship. Did you know that? Here's another quote for you. Now, I'll wind it down here. Ephesians 5, be filled with the Spirit. Speak to one another with psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. Sing and make music in your heart to the Lord. Always giving thanks to, to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Yeshua, the Messiah. Do you feel like worship is beyond you? It is for some of us. Some of us come to God in different directions, different ways. For me, coming to God has always been word-centered, and at some point I woke up to the fact that I wasn't worshiping God a whole lot, and I said, Lord, would you please teach me? I'm clueless, and it's a steep learning curve, but would you please teach me? And he has been. And each Shabbat, as we come to worship, my attitude is, Lord, I want to bring you my basket of praise and worship. Maybe it's this small right now. At some point, I want to see it getting bigger and bigger and fuller. I want to grow in worship of the Lord, in praising Him, because it's part of our our love relationship. And requires a choice, folks. Requires a choice. You can either be consumed with life, consumed with, with what is on the ground, Or you can choose to remember God's goodness. You can choose to give Him thanks. You can learn to take your basket of praise and worship 
whether it's in song or dance or waving flag or financially in its proper season. And you can learn to grow and experience the Father's heart, His smile upon you as you recognize that that belongs to Him and you are moved in your heart, you have a soft heart, you want to give Him that worship. Choose today to grow in worship. Let's pray. And please stand. And this is something that nobody can put in your heart and mind. Nobody can force you to do it. Even God himself can't. You have to desire, have some desire to see worship become part of your life. And you can cry out and say, God, I want that. I want to learn to worship you. In my finances, in my singing, in my attitude, in everything that I do. Father God, we desire to be a worshiping people. We desire, Lord God, to take from what you have given us as first fruits to you, Lord, to honor you because you're worthy of our honor and our adoration. Lord God, I pray for each person here, wherever they are on this scale, Lord. I pray that your Ruach would challenge us and stir us, Lord God, to grow in this area, to learn, Lord God, to love you through our praise and our worship of you. Here on Shabbat mornings at home in the, in the little corner that we've selected to, to pray, in the car, every place, Lord God, we pray that you would make worship a part of our life, our weekly and our daily life, Lord God. Pour out your Spirit upon us in this area, Lord God. Receive the honor and the glory that belongs to you. And we ask all of that, Lord, in the name of Yeshua, our Messiah. Amen.